Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Good Grow Great podcast. I'm Talia Toha and this is Six Degrees of Greatness. This is the episode where we typically sit down with one, two, or three different people from different walks of life and we really unpack what's been working with them, what has been, uh, you know, maybe something that's not working so much for them personally or professionally, what are some mindsets, strategies, things that you all can take home and really really just adopt and adapt in a way that makes sense for you in a way that is fulfilling and enriching and meaningful. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Although I do have a special guest, Natasha Gupta, who is an investment bank professional turned UK based, get this, restaurant designer. So cool. And the founder of Blue Feature Design. So, uh, and we're going to be going deep dive actually with Natasha. And this is going to be a an episode focused solely on Natasha, where she essentially shares with us what she had said to her family years ago when she wanted to do something no one expected her to do, uh, including her career choice and just how she was able to transition to something that she felt called to do, right? We all have been faced with things like this when our family or someone we know, our friends or colleagues perhaps, they don't necessarily support what we do, right? So what exactly should you do? What exactly should you say? And and she's also going to be sharing the two-step emotional intelligence process that she used to persuade clients to do what's really good for them, except that a lot of times they just don't know it just yet, right? And how do you get to a yes in a way that makes sense and is graceful to all? So she's going to be sharing that. I'm so excited to share that with you for sure. Um, other things that she's going to be sharing with us and stuff that you're going to be taking home is also how your selling point evolves over time. Time without you realizing. And this actually does happen to all most business uh, owners, most career professionals who's looking to advance their career. Uh, a lot of times things that we think is the highlight of what we have to offer change. So how do you adapt to this, t- to this change if you didn't even realize that it's been changing, right? So what does that look like? Also, more things. We're going to be sharing word-for-word script that Natasha used to turn any disappointment or embarrassing situation in your favor. Uh, And in this case, she's going to be sharing something where it's really, really interesting. She walked into an interview that that wasn't all about the things that she thought it was about. So that's something definitely to tune into. Also, what are some ways to reframe our relationship with finance, with money? And how can you spend and invest in yourself free of guilt? Is there such a thing, right? A lot of times people don't like to talk about these things. And what does that mean? How does that impact our lives negatively? How does it impact our lives positively, perhaps, right? We're going to be talking about all of those things, including brilliant work from home approaches you didn't know you need. And if you're still thinking people just don't get it, people just don't get you and your offering and how you can advocate yourself, definitely listen to this episode. So much goodness. We're going to be unpacking so many things today. And without further ado, before you forget, before you start, be sure to hit that save, follow, add, collect, and download button wherever you're listening uh, so that you can have this episode ready when you're out and about 
running errands, in the house, at the grocery store, in the car, and even though you don't have Wi-Fi or cell reception, you always have this in your back pocket just in case you need to reference it, just in case you, you're going, you know what, I need something, there's something that's missing in my work and I got to figure this out, let's take a look. Uh, so definitely hit those save, follow, add, and collect button. And let's dive in, Gross Solvers. Right, Natasha, welcome to the podcast. So good seeing you. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Amazing. Well, I'm so excited to have you because your concept, you know, Blue Feather Designs, uh, I've checked it out, it looks amazing and just wonderful and it has a mission, which I think is also important. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But I thought that before we dive into all of those, I thought that we'd actually circle back to one of your interests, which is uh, karate. And you had mentioned before we start rolling that you want to get a, a black belt before you're 50 years old, which I think, which I think is amazing, by the way. I know a lot of people who are in martial arts and it's, it's a commitment. It's a huge time commitment. What brought you to, 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 well, first of all, I don't know if you started it when you're younger, but what brought you to, to that space? I did do it when I was younger. It was one of those things that your parents make you do and you didn't want to. <laughs> so <laughs> I got to, I got to Brown Belt, which is one just before black. And I was about 12 years old. Um, and I was the only girl in my dojo. So there was lots of factors that made me quit at that time, kind of just growing up and being a moody teenager, I guess, and really not enjoying myself um, and obviously being the only girl. So I left. Um, and then I didn't look back, really. I didn't think about it. I did have my regrets of not getting the black because uh, I was so close. Um, but then my son started when he was about five um, and he's 11 now. So he's at that point where he's like, I can't be bothered to get to black and I'm just going to give up. So he's at that same point. Um, and I thought, no, I'm not going to let you do that because I regretted not doing it. So I'm going to make you get to black, <laughs> whether you like it or not, I'm going to make you do it. And one of the things was, well, if I jo join you, will that make a difference? If I join you, will you carry on? And he said, yes. So it was kind of, um, it was for him really, but it was also an opportunity for me to get back to doing what I should have done in the first place and finished. Um, but it's actually really been amazing for me, especially during this pandemic, um, kind of mental health wise and physical health is just, it's been phenomenal and I just couldn't recommend it enough. So I've just been so glad that I did it. So now I have set myself that goal of, of getting to black before I'm 50. So I haven't got too long to go. So I really need to get going. <laughs> well, and I think it's kind of interesting that you, you really put your foot down, especially when your son is like, well, I'm, you know, I'm just going to not do it because it doesn't seem worthwhile. And you have had that years of perspective ahead of him. And you kind of went to him and go, you know what, let's just finish it. You're almost there. And, um, and so I wonder though, cause I have a you know, I have kids as well. And sometimes persuading them is, is a little bit more tricky than persuading ourselves, right? So how did you have that conversation, which I think is always important, whether you're, you know, negotiating with your kiddo or negotiating with, you know, people who, who you work with? What was that conversation like? 
It wasn't easy, I tell you. If he's going to pursue something, it's probably going to be like law or something like that because he's just so argumentative all mm. of the time. So it was it was difficult, but he was he was quite quickly persuaded. I think he's still at that age where he likes me and he likes my company. <laughs> so the fact that I said let's do it together kind of it didn't take too much persuasion. So I was quite lucky, really. Yeah, this is, um, I think this is, it, it kind of can tell, you can kind of tell what your relationship is with your, you know, the person that you're persuading or not persuading, because like, if they trust you, and they know that it's it's for their own good, right, whether they're your, your child or parent or business partner, client, whatever it is, it usually does become a lot smoother. So it was it something that I mean, going back to your your background again did you come from a you know again a design background or is it something that is design something that you stumble upon was it you mentioned law was that the track that you were on before you embark on blue feather not at all so I come from a really traditional Asian family really really traditional so the only career paths we were allowed was law or to be a doctor, or to be an accountant, or something like that. And my parents were actually quite liberal um, in comparison to most, but they were still like, no, there's certain professions where you just don't need to look at, and art was one of them, which is what I wanted to do. I wanted to do art and design, and they were like, well, that's not really a career. You can do that on the side. Don't worry. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I ended up in um, I ended up in finance as one of the good careers to be in. Um, and I was good at it. I was good. And I, I enjoyed it in the beginning. Um, the money was good. So that helped. Certainly when you're a new kind of new graduate and you've got plenty of money to go around, that certainly helps. Um, so I ended up in investment management um, as my first job. So um, it was it was really good. And I met some amazing people and I had a lot of fun and I learned a lot. Um, but I just I really quickly realized that it was just not for me. Um and I actually left when I had my daughter. So my eldest is now uh, 13. So I left then. Um, and sort of during maternity, I thought, let me kind of think about other other things to do to occupy my time. Very naively, I thought maternity means I've got plenty of time. <laughs> so I decided to take a course in interior design at that time. God, I was so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Yeah, but I, you know, it took me a long time to finish, but you know, it was one of those things I love to do, even if it was an hour or so a day. I did manage to get it done eventually. It wasn't the year that or that I hoped to do it within a year. It took me seven, <laughs> but, yeah. but still, I managed to do it. So, um, so it was still something that I really enjoyed, and I was glad to do. Yeah, well, and I love that you kind of took, I think the, the detour sometimes that a lot of people take, they're often kind of, you know, really granular and almost step by step. And it's not like a, a huge jump. And I don't like that terminology, you know, really kind of uh, taking a leap because it's never really taking a leap. Usually it's usually like, oh, you take a few steps here in your case from, you know, the the traditional Asian family and, and what the expectations look like into, you know, finance, which kind of eases them into the, the business world, of course, and right. And I know that because, you know, me being Asian as well, have lots of, you know, amazing Asian friends and amazing Asian friend parents as well. Um, I understand that it's kind of, you know, when your family expects you to do certain things and also have a certain worldview about what success means, right? What does it look like? What does it entail? 
it's often very difficult, right, to kind of make that uh, make that uh, I guess step and definitely you know that have it, have that conversation. But you know, similarly in your case, when when your kiddo was convinced for black belt and that seemed okay, was that the case with your parents when you shared with them, you know what, mom and dad, I'm not going to be a doctor, not going to be a lawyer. Um, I'm going to try investment banking. I mean, it's still, it should be a, a fairly slightly okay, but maybe there are elements where they're like, what Natasha <laughs> 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 was that? It was any of that a, a conversation? Not really. I think, um, I think I was lucky in that they didn't really understand what I was doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they were like, Oh, it's a bank. Yeah, that's fine. That'll do. <laughs> right. so, so, um, so yeah, I mean, part of my job was to look after corporate accounts. So I used to do a lot of hospitality in there, taking them out to things like Wimbledon, taking them to dinners and things like that, um, which kind of brought me into to the life that I'm in now because I love it. I love eating. I love entertaining. And I love just being in that space. So it is something that, um, that I did. I was drawn to quite naturally from the beginning. Um, and design is just something that, you know, kind of, I suppose, was in me from the beginning as well. Um, so, you know, I'd go into places and be like, oh, I don't really like that. Or if I was, you know, if I was the designer, I'd do this. And naturally, I just started having these conversations with myself. It's probably a sign of insanity, I'm sure. But, it was, <laughs> you know, even in the office, I'd be like t- talking to the MD about you know, introducing some plants or doing something that's different. Why? Why is it so clinical in here? You know, it does affect people's well-being. And I was having those conversations without even realizing that I was thinking about design Mm. so I guess the you know the jump was not so sudden in my case that it was it was kind of like you said it was a natural progression it wasn't just one leap from one thing to another um you know the the finance degree kind of helped me with the investment management side of things um and then having like a business background also helped me kind of take the next step as well so it all kind of followed through I guess and that's I guess that's what life is about isn't it you kind of just kind of swim through almost. Yeah. Well, and I, what I love the most actually is that, you know, you taking hints from, you know, what you enjoy in the areas that perhaps at that point was for you, but then wasn't going to be the, the space for you in long term. And I love that because that's also how I actually got to do what I do. It's a very natural progression, you know? Um, and so I think, people often feel the need to have to like commit, um, you know, 110% to something. And while those have value, we have to understand that there's an evolution that exists in our, in our lives, right? Seasons of life changes and um, our, our outlook and worldview changes and everything that we're doing prepares us for this other thing that um, maybe becomes kind of, it has a different look or feel or process through it. So I love that. I love, love, love that process. Um, I do want to touch on it because you touch on, um, you know, design, hospitality, you know, and, and restaurant and all of these things that kind of play a part into what you're doing right now. Where was the, the love for koala and peacocks uh, came from? I, I love this because you mentioned before we started rolling that you're obsessed with peacocks and you really want to hug a koala. And by the way, people who are listening, I was telling Natasha how when she said she wants to hug a koala, I was like, well, I want to hug a koala too, because, because they, now that you think about it, they really do. They have this quality where a very huggable quality. Where did that come from? They do. I have no idea. I wish I could tell you a really grand story. (laughs) 
yeah. I have these random moments in my life where I'm thinking, well, what about that? Or what about this? And I yeah. think that's that's <laughs> kind of the brain of a creative. It's never linear, is it? So, <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, I've, something that I really want to do um, and I didn't get to do because I had the kids really young is travel the world. I've always wanted to do that. And, you know, even now I've told, um, we've got like a, a bucket list for the whole family of all the countries we want to explore. Um, and we're ticking them off one by one. So when they said we want to go to Disneyland again, I'm like, absolutely not. It's going to be like, we need to get to the next place. And the next <laughs> place is Australia. And one thing that I was saying to the kids, and my kids are great animal lovers as well. Um, and they were like, you know, what what kind of animals are over there? And I told them, um, and the, th- the thing that I don't know why it just came to me about koalas and how huggable they are. And I was like, wouldn't you want a, wouldn't you want a cuddle with a koala? And now it's just become a life dream of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love the, selling the kids on the koalas instead of Disneyland. <laughs> that, that would be a hard sell for the kids, I think. But, um, but I think I love that you, you shared that, um, we do all have this limited amount of time in the world. And it's really interesting, right? Because I even take that approach now when I look at books that I want to read, I have a very, you know, kind of measured approach on whether it deserves whatever it is, a couple of weeks, a couple of days of my attention, because it's, it really takes on a time commitment. Like it's really, especially with you traveling, if you want to go to Disneyland, that's like at least a couple of weeks of your life, right? Australia, you know, maybe even more so because they're so far, you know, so and um but they're important i think traveling is important and um and i think i love that you kind of you know took on that approach that this is something that's important for the family and you're kind of sticking sticking to it and uh but yeah for sure let me know how your you know bucket list is going i have my own bucket list as well and it's it's for places that i know some listeners here who are listening they're like i'm i live there you guys you know it's it's amazing so um i do want to kind of circle back to your you know, you touched on, you know, your work on investment bank, uh, in, in investment banking, and then you kind of went into, you know, the hospitality, you sort of dabbled into it. And and now with your work as a restaurant designer specializing in, in sustainable interiors, why did you kind of take on, because I know there are a lot of restaurant designers out there, right? There's a lot of um, different types and, and categories. Uh, why sustainable interiors? Was this something that you felt called to was this something that you stumbled upon something that was introduced to you uh why sustainable interiors i don't really know how it started but i've always been very conscious of the environment so you know even from a a very young age um i never ate meat for example because i you know it was it wasn't a religious choice by any means it was more that I didn't want to hurt the animals. And it was, you know, I was, I think I was about two when I told my mom that that I don't want to hurt the animals. I can't eat them. And then, you know, she was sitting there with a chicken curry trying to spoon feed me and like, no, you have to eat this. (laughs) And I point blank refused because I didn't want to hurt any animals. So it was something that was with me for forever. Um, But when I started with design, I started with um, a couple of big big franchise names um, and I was helping them with project management So I was involved in a lot of the construction side of things rather than the design part. Um, But what I noticed was the amount of waste that was generated in each project. So, you know, in each one, if it was just a redesign, for example, because they've rebranded or whatever it is, it would be a full gut out. Everything would be chucked into the skip um, and that was it. They would end up in landfill. 
And it broke my heart because so much of it could be reused. Um, and this was sort of, I'm talking about 10 years ago now. So at that point, everybody was looking at me like I was crazy. Like, why would you want to reuse this? It's old stuff. You don't need to reuse it. We've got new stuff coming in. But I was like, well, you'd save money, firstly, because you're not throwing it away. Um, and secondly, you're saving it from going into landfill. So obviously, that's good for the environment. Why would you not want to do it? Um, you know, there's sites like eBay and Gumtree and all of these big selling sites, for example. Um, I think you've got things like Craigslist over there where you can get rid of all of this stuff and people will actually take it because they need it or they want it or you might get some money for it. So, you know, it just makes, uh, for, for me, financial sense as well as kind of environmental sense. So that's kind of where it started. So I I got involved with contractors, kind of trying to get them to understand my approach and why I'm trying to say these things. And then gradually the clients started to understand that actually it made sense for them as well. They were saving money. Um, and if somebody was going to take that off their hands so they don't have to think about it, then that's win-win for them. So that's kind of where it all started. And, and now, obviously, you know, there's a whole almost, uh, hopefully it's not a phase, but it's just this whole kind of evolution of sustainability where people are actually becoming more conscious of it. And I hope it's not a phase because, you know, these things do kind of come in and out, obviously. But what I've still noticed um, and what still kind of grinds me is that there's a lot of what you call greenwashing, um, where people say they're a sustainable brand or there's sustainable this or they'll kind of fly this word around and it doesn't really make any sense anymore. So I'm like, how are you sustainable? What do you do? How is it that your product is eco-friendly? So I'll start to ask all these questions that a lot of people don't like asking. And either I'll get, oh, that's great that you've asked and with you know, all this excitement because they're doing X, Y, and Z, or they'll be like, oh, yeah, because we said so. <laughs> so, so. So that's kind of become like a, almost um, a passion project on the side where I'm trying to understand kind of the, the manufacturing process of all the products that are used within the designs. Um, but then also kind of helping my clients on that same journey as well, because not everybody is an expert. They haven't got time to find these things out. And that's not their fault, but it, it doesn't mean that they're not interested. So, you know, that's kind of something that I've been doing on the side is that did you know things like paint can actually improve the you know the air quality and um, certain furniture have got paints that are actually bad for you and things like that. So, um, you know, people don't know these things. So it's a designer's job, I feel, to kind of help them on that journey and on that process as well. Yeah, I love that you you touched on a few, I think, really important things. And one that jumps out to me is really when when you kind of start to connect with different contractors and you really try to be the advocate of what you believe in, in that, you know, these uh, materials that are good are good for everyone. And, and people who don't understand it require a bit of market education. And I think a lot of people who are listening and they maybe are starting their business or trying to start something else um, or trying to grow something, right? A lot of the the work that's involved is in a matter of um, essentially getting the other uh, side to really understand and see things in, in a way that you also see it, right? And sometimes that doesn't happen because like you were saying, they didn't. Ju they just didn't know about it, right? Or they didn't know that it's important, or they didn't know how it's important. Can you um, maybe expand just a little bit more about, you know, how you've been able to do that, um, you know, over time, obviously, and um, and how maybe the the audience who's listening can do the same as well, because it's uh, it really isn't easy. I think for a lot of people who are who are in that 
phase where you were a number of years ago to to really bridge that gap between you know, not being understood, not being seen, not being heard um, in the way that it, it, they should be, and they don't deserve. They didn't get the attention and recognition that they deserve just quite yet. All the way to okay, you know, the clients understand. Okay, this is useful. Okay, I'm happy to pay for it. Like, what are some key lessons that you've learned over the course of the years that helped you? Um, and you've touched on it on a little bit already, but key lessons that helped you, uh, you know, allow that to happen. I think it's just been really hard to be honest I mean there's so many times where I have given up and thought what is the point in me saying this stuff nobody's listening and you know I have been through that cycle over and over again I think most entrepreneurs will get that cycle where you're on a high and then all of a sudden it's a crash down because you feel like you're not getting anywhere and I've been through that cycle I don't even know how many times now um I think the the recent trends have certainly helped um in getting the message across um, but for me, I think the biggest seller was money. So that's what I found people understood. So people kn- know what good value for money looks like. They know what saving money looks like. So as soon as I kind of changed the narrative of this is not good for the environment, this is, you know, this is good for the environment. When I stopped talking like that and said, actually, if you do this this way, it's um, good for the environment, but actually it will save you money. And then all of a sudden they start listening um, and it's like, oh, okay, it saved me money. Oh, and it's good for the environment. So that was almost a good byproduct. Um, but, you know, the, the the selling point for me and for them was the, the money factor. And I guess money talks to everybody and it's a universal language. So it was something that I didn't really work hard on anymore because it was just really easy um, talking in a way that they understood. So. Um, I think that was probably the turning point for me when it just suddenly clicked that, you know, you need to stop talking about stuff they don't want to hear about. They don't care. They don't want to understand because it doesn't, you know, they don't know how it affects them. They don't understand the repercussions at this present moment. But as soon as I started talking about money, it seemed to make more sense. So <laughs> so I guess, um, you know, as a consumer, I'm, I do behave in the same way. If somebody tells me, um, you know, you can get a bargain with this, you can get buy one, get one free or whatever it is, suddenly you kind of are more interested or you feel like, yes, I, I want to know what that's about. Um, but then, you know, having that sustainable factor afterwards makes me want to buy even more. So I guess that's the way the market actually works. And, you know, being a beginner. Um, and a new person in that arena I just didn't know it then so I think it was all you know everything you do on a daily basis I feel you'd learn something so every project however much I got frustrated with people not listening I learned you know stuff that they were not interested in completely to what they are interested in now so it's just been a really gradual process as with everything Um, and I've learned on the way that you know people different people talk different languages I mean nowadays um the clients only want to know about the sustainable angle so what what should I do to make my my business more sustainable what should I do to use more eco-friendly materials what should I do to make myself um you know appeal to the sustainable market so actually the language is changing again now so I'm finding that I'm having to do more of the education rather than the cost saving factor so I guess it's really cyclical but it also depends on the person you're talking to Um, which I'm really lucky about now that people are actually interested. So I get to talk endlessly about stuff that I'm passionate about. So that's all good now. 
Well, I love that you touched on, uh, you know, the the money factor being kind of the initial way to gain that momentum towards the good thing that you're already advocating, which is sustainability, which I think is, it's so interesting, right? I think you you really um, hit the, the, the nail on the bullseye there in that sometimes to get to a certain point, you do have to, I always say this on the podcast, you do have to meet people where they are, as long as it aligns with your values and right, like all of these things doesn't mean that you bend down to things that you don't believe in, but meet them where you can both meet. And then you can go to this area where, yes, your impact can be all the greater. Yes, you know, you can change people's lives in a meaningful way, all of the things that are important, but oftentimes, we want to get there, but then actually this is really this other tool and conversation is really the the gateway to this other thing and yet however once you get there you know sometimes you do have to kind of um, you know that's the thing that precedes the money talk and i am kind of curious because um i have another podcast with another conversation uh, with a couple of uh, a couple of people there where we talk about how weird it is that most people don't really talk about money and it's really odd you know, the conversations that we are having and are not having, not even with, you know, clients and and people who are, we do business with, but even just amongst ourselves, sometimes within, you know, with our spouse or our parents, right? And it's kind of, it's almost, it's interesting how, and I don't know, maybe you, you grew up in a, in, in a family where money's constantly talked about. I didn't, remember too many conversations about money. And I don't know why, you know, it's not that my parents weren't advocates, and they actually are, you know, huge capitalists, they love, you know, just kind of growth and, and commerce, all of that. But we never really talk specifically day to day, what that looks like. So um, was this something that was conversed in your, I know you had very traditional Asian parents similar to me, but um, even though they're both uh, very kind of uh, has a liberal angle and all these things, but did you have those conversations growing up? And do you also have those conversations now, you know, as you kind of raise your, you know, you have a son and what's that like um, in the past and presently for you? So this is a bit of a funny one because I, grew up with um with not much so we were quite um you know kind of a low middle class family um and money was talked about in a negative way so it was we don't have anything so don't ask for that we don't have enough money so don't ask for that or do you think money goes on trees and you know it was all all those kind of conversations so it was always seen in a negative light not in a positive And I've done a lot of work on this kind of self-development wise um, into all those kind of limiting beliefs that you have within yourself, especially as a woman, I think, Um, you know, especially when I started the business and charging people a certain amount and I felt really uncomfortable with it and things like that. So it's, it's something that I've worked on a huge amount. I think it's more I've worked on this more than I've done anything else. So. It was something that I really didn't want, want to bring the children up on. You know, they should have a positive relationship with money. I mean, you need it. It's a fact of life. You know, you need it to get by. It's not the source of happiness. I don't, I'm not saying that, but you need a certain amount to get by and to live life and to kind of just be happy and content with things. So I've kind of changed the narrative in that, you know, you don't have to do the whole go to school, go to university, get a job and and kind of be this person or in almost like a robotic fashion. I've always been an advocate of kind of being creative and starting your own thing and doing your own thing and and making a difference is is something that I'm really passionate about. So I've told the kids from like day one is that you can do what you want. You know, if you've got the money for it, go and buy it, go and do what you want to do. 
here's what you could do if you save the money instead. <laughs> so kind of give them that balanced approach. So right now he's after a PlayStation 5. So that costs about UK currency. It's about £500. So it's a big chunk of change. So I said, okay, so you can save your money to buy your PS5 or that £500 in an investment could actually get you quite a lot more. What do you want to do? So he had to think about that for a very long time. (laughs) So now he said, actually, I'm going to save up for my PS5 and I'm going to start a YouTube channel so I can pay for the games. (laughs) Okay, there you go. So we're getting somewhere. So I just feel like that narrative has changed. So it's not seen in a negative connotation, which is what I wanted to achieve. But I think money with women is a big issue even now. Um, And I don't think that's a cultural thing. I think just universally women find it harder to talk about money for some reason. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's another podcast for you. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I think it's, it is so interesting that you, you did touch on something that really is fascinating to me in that, you know, um, you know, when you told your son, okay, what exactly you want to do? I did the exact same thing with my kids when they were, I think they were so young. They probably were like, you know, three to five or something and they wanted to buy something. And I start to have the conversation, you know, you can save it, you can, you know, you can, you can invest it or growing it, you grow it, or you can give it, or you can spend it, right? Those are the three to four things that you can do with money or maybe more, but those are the three, four main things. And, um, and I, I was frank with them. I was honest. And I was, I told them, I'm like, you know what, the years that I tried to just save, 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 um, you know, my life didn't go anywhere. You know, it just felt like this hermetic environment. And you just, it's almost like you're going on like a a fast uh, and you're trying to, to lose weight with extreme measures. You know, it's almost like that kind of vibe, but and and for me, I don't know if everyone listening can relate to this, but I always find that it's easier to earn, um, you know, than it is to to save and or make by saving. We could, because you know, again, we can talk about the the math and everything, which is something else. Again, probably another podcast. But you're right, particularly with women. I don't know why that we have this weird relationship. Uh, I know that even for me, sometimes I have to check myself when I go to the grocery store. Um, you know, I, I sometimes I'm very kind of, you know, militaristic almost on, okay, I don't want to spend more than X. But then I would spend really liberally for my kids, my husband, or, or for other people. And I'm like, why, why is this? This is so odd. You know, uh, why are we treating ourselves with with less kindness, grace, and respect um, than we would with other people. I don't know what the answer is to that, but you're, I think you're, you're absolutely right. There's something here, but you know, again, that might be another conversation. Um, I do want to chat with, uh, with you on, you know, your work with Blue Feather a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, you touched on sustainability and interiors, you know, home, and you were featured in Homes and Gardens, you know, Asian Voice and Eastern Eye. And um, I am curious to hear your take on, and I know that your space is more kind of restaurant design, right? And that's a little bit more your specialty. But for the listeners who are listening and they are now knee deep in work-life kind of uh, alignment and trying to work from home as much as possible without losing their sanity, they've got kids running around, they've got like things, you know, 20 apps open from a design standpoint, right? From your standpoint, what should that look like for people who um, predominantly work from home? Like, should they carve out 
a little space just for work? Like, should they have that separation? If so, like, where should people start? Is it with like, a, I mean, I'm on a standing desk right now and I love it. But, uh, you know, what, what are some thoughts, even maybe from a personal standpoint uh, on, you know, how can we create something that is really meaningful from home? So I think the number one thing that I would say is stop looking at the internet and Pinterest and all of these places because it's given these everybody a false sense of what a workspace should look like. And then it starts getting people into this anxious mode of, oh, my, you know, my desk space is not Instagram worthy or all of this kind of stuff. And it actually makes you more stressed out and it's not worth it at all. I think for me, it's always... Um, you know design is not just about making things beautiful it's about the functionality of it so the number one thing to do first and foremost is think about what do you need this space for is it just to perch on a laptop are you like me where you've got this whole sample library and you've got fabrics here and you know uh, wood samples here and literally it's all over so you know what is it that you need exactly and be really really honest with yourself so if it is just a laptop and a cup of tea then you know you just need to have that little corner of the house. You don't need to have all these shelves and all this fancy equipment near you. Um, And I think that's the first place to start. But the second place is to have somewhere quiet where you do get that little bit of, of peace and quiet and to be able to get away and then leave that space and switch off as well. Because obviously being at home and working is actually really, really difficult because you can't switch off that, you know, especially if your workspace is, say, for example, on the dining table or something like that, which a lot of people are doing. And then you are then going there to eat and to, you know, to to socialize afterwards. You actually haven't got that separation to be able to switch off completely. Oh, let me just quickly check that email. Or I just saw that ping up. Let me just quickly have a look. And that quickly turns into like half an hour, an hour, and then you're spending time, which you wouldn't do otherwise. So If you're going to the office, for example, there is that separation, that cutoff where you come home and you can completely relax. So I completely understand that nobody, not everybody has that luxury of having a separate office in their house as as I do. Um, But even if you can pack things away and then unpack them in the morning, I know that sounds really difficult and just another job to do. But actually, it'll feel much lighter for you because you've got that space where you can then say, right, that's done work is done for the day I can now switch off I can now have my time off to watch Netflix or spend time with the kids or whatever you want to do and I think that's kind of the key in in office design is to have something that is portable if it needs to be or something that is completely out of the way and in that kind of sanctuary space as well so you can work in peace but you can switch off in peace as well. Yeah, I love it's not this. Really design related, I know. <laughs> well, actually, there. I think there. It's I guess lifestyle design, right? You have to design specific things as well and specific systems, whether that's physical things or not. And I, I completely concur with you. I remember for a long time I used to kind of work in in my bedroom, and I know some people that's perfectly fine, and you know they don't have any other options outside of that, but. I was like, I didn't, I realized that I was having trouble sleeping for whatever reason. I didn't feel stressed out or anything particular, but I had, you know, I continued to go to bed later and later. I continued to, you know, stay up even later. And I was like, what is going on? Like, this is really weird. And I realized that, you know, that space in my mind had become 
the workspace. And so going to sleep there seemed counterintuitive, perhaps even to my body or my brain chemistry, it seems even. Um, and obviously, I'm not a designer or, you know, therapist or, or scientist by any means, but it that's what happened to me. So you're totally on point in that sometimes the physical separation, even if you just kind of carve out like a little, um, you know, whatever it is, 10 by 10 feet. Um, I mean, UK, you guys have different measurements, but here in the US, 10 by 10 feet and um, somewhere else, you know, and just kind of close it off. That's, I think that's usually a better, for me anyway, it's a better way to go. So I do, I wanted to kind of touch on something that you raised, which is, I think is really important about, you know, kind of turning off and um, allowing yourself that barrier from um, the input of other people's expectations, or maybe the perceived notion that there is this, per, uh, you know, expectations from other people. And you specifically talked about the internet, you know, scrolling through whatever Instagram or whatever, Facebook, who knows. Um, and I think there is this kind of dichotomy that we have to to live with in, in that in some ways there is an element of our lives that um, maybe it needs to, maybe it doesn't need to uh, satisfy other people's expectations versus, you know, our own dreams, things that are valuable, things that we actually really want. And so in your example, you touched on, you know, the internet being kind of like a thing that really skews that balance. But I actually wanted to kind of transition that over to, okay, well, what does that look like when, you know, you work with clients and a lot of people who are listening work with clients. And sometimes, particularly in design, I know this because I have a lot of designer friends, they they have something that they have a philosophy, they have a design style that they think they are sure is going to be worthwhile, it's going to work better for the client. But again, you know, the client hasn't seen it, hasn't yet quite believed it. And so there's that, a little bit of that resistance, right, um, and, into, okay, well, this is how it should look like. Um, and uh, But because they can't, they haven't seen it with their eyes, now we have renderings, but still, sometimes there's that kind of like, well, but I want to throw in this, like, you know, whatever 20 feet pillar in the middle of the, the space. <laughs> and you go, what? Right? So how do, you, how do you balance that? How do you align that in your specific space? I guess that's probably the hardest part of my job is to to get people to understand what I'm saying and why I'm saying it. But the way I approach it is to is to really take them on my on my visual journey is what I call it. So what we start with is kind of the concept ideas. So they'll bring over their Pinterest boards or whatever it is that they've seen and they love and they want all of this within their tiny little space. And then we'll kind of filter that down and say, right, what is it about those images that actually you really like? And when you start doing that, it's actually really surprising how many images get thrown out because they'll be like, oh, actually, I really just like that plant in that one. Or I really just like that lighting in that one. But you really have to go quite deep within each image and each perceived kind of vision that the client wants. Um, So that is a process. It takes a bit of time. Um, But then eventually what I've found and what I've said to people is good design feels like you haven't used a designer, you've done it yourself. And that's, that's kind of the key. So it's, it's taking them on that journey, not saying, right, this is what you're going to go with because I said, so I'm the designer and I know best actually it's, it's their space. So it has to work for them and they have to be happy. So, you know, when, the commercial perspective is slightly different from a domestic point of view but in the commercial space you're looking at from a client's point of view and again it's kind of that financial aspect of things what's going to bring you in more clients 
how do they think kind of building up that customer avatar and thinking about how they think about things um, but on the residential side of things from a from a home and from a person's point of view at home how do you use that space what do you do in that space and kind of really building the design around them um, to such an extent where it feels like they've done it themselves so it's just it's it's a a time-consuming process but I feel like that's what makes a good design is is that you've taken them through those aspects um, and those key things that you know help them understand what you're doing and why you're thinking them so you know even something like oh I really love this and um, I had this client that really wanted a neon sign because it's all the rage at the moment mm. and so they were like oh I just want this huge neon sign on this wall um, but when we understood it and we thought, right, what is your, you know, who is your client at the moment? And it was kind of the the retired age and, the, you know, the 50s to the 70s who like to hang out and kind of have a drink. And it's more like a gentleman's lounge. Yeah. And they don't want a neon sign. They don't care about Instagram. They don't need any of that. Mm-hmm. So they were thinking about spending like thousands of pounds on this neon sign. And I'm telling them that's that's brilliant. But let's think about it from your client's point of view. I love neon signs. I think it's brilliant. So look at this, look at this. All of them have it. But this is not your business. This is not what your clients want. So let's look at it from their point of view. So it's kind of saying, yes, I get you. I hear you. I understand what you want and I like what you want. But let's look at it from a different point of view. So it's kind of it's quite there's quite a lot of psychology involved in interior design. So you you are just helping them through that process. Yeah, I have to agree. I think a lot of, um, you know, really responsible and good business owners in every domain that I've seen, who are absolute masters in what they do, they do really, and borrowing the terminology of, you know, my, my friends who are therapists, there's a little bit of that work involved, right, to actually get to the real work, because you do have to kind of unpack uh, you you know you touched on limiting beliefs. You have to unpack certain things that they think is necessary. They think is unnecessary, and without us unpacking it, the actual productive and beautiful work that we're meaning to do won't ever get done, right? Because I mean, I absolutely agree. There are definitely places where you know um, I don't know the color green makes sense, but there are other places where color purple purple makes more sense or whatever, um, you know. And similarly with with fixtures and and all of these things. So I, I think what you touched on is uh, getting them to hear. Uh, well, get, actually getting them to hear that you've heard them first, I think it is really important having them understand that they're being heard and seen also important. So for people who are listening and, and um, you know, on a day to day basis, struggling with maybe someone who's like, okay, they just don't get it. This, I think Natasha definitely, you know, you touched on something really, really key, which, uh, which is absolutely uh, fantastic and just fabulous. Um I do want to also uh, touch on the, you know, you, you, t- uh, and this is going back for a few years, probably you had mentioned that, you know, before we started rolling, you had mentioned that um, you did once turn up for an interview for a job. And uh, as it turns out, it was something entirely different. Did you kind of walk into, was it like a different appointment or did you <laughs> read it incorrectly? What happened there? <laughs> <laughs> so this was, um, I'm a fresh graduate from university Uh and I've applied to all these job agencies to help me find a job. I must have gone through at least a hundred places, hundreds, hundreds of rejections. And then I get this interview at one of the most well-known banks in London. 
so the agent phones me up just before this is what the job is blah 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 this is what you need to do um and you can go wow them because you've done this a hundred times so I was like okay that's fine I can do that I went in there and they obviously the first question what do you know about this role and how do you think you're going to approach this role and all those kind of you know those typical questions so I go off on one and kind of talk for ages about this role and how fantastic I think it is and what I'm going to bring to the table and then there was this radio silence (laughs) okay so that's not actually what this role is (laughs) (laughs) oh no (laughs) so I'm sitting there going um yeah plenty of expletives um and then they said okay kind of close the book thank you very much nice to see you see you later so obviously in tears very fresh graduate kind of the first interview that I went to and I phoned up the agent did you know that that this was the job and she's like oh I'm so sorry I'm so sorry totally my fault and yeah I should have I should have realized that this wasn't the role um and it's completely my mistake let me tell them that it's my mistake and not yours so she phones them up and and the next day I get a call back to say, oh, we actually really liked you and we really loved your passion, even if it was for the wrong role. <laughs> so can you come back and, and get a second interview? So I um yeah, I went back for a second, third interview and finally landed the job. So it it wasn't a complete disaster, <laughs> but you can imagine how traumatized I was in the beginning. But it just goes to show that, I mean, even as an employer, you know, it's not about those questions. It's more about the personality and how that personality fits into your into your business, isn't it, at the end of the day? Um, and I guess that's what they saw in me. <laughs> yeah, that is so funny. I love that you you kind of like you turned up and just the, the, the feeling of, oh, my goodness, what have I done kind of thing. How do you even save and uh, save that and recover for, from that is probably the questions that went through your mind. I know if I were in your position, I would have just been like, Oh, okay. Sorry, and just really just walk out the door and be like, okay, <laughs> you know. So, but I'm so glad that it sounds like they, um, you know, they they enjoyed you, and and then that's why that they took you on in a different role. But it does remind me of these instances you kind of hear this sometimes especially in the entertainment world where actors kind of audition for certain things or certain roles and then um it wasn't a fit but because they saw something in that individual that can be valuable or can be actually useful in this other role they get this other role that actually is not only more fitting also better for their personality and and better pay maybe even right or whatever it is so i think that there's also value in looking at things uh, not necessarily as a total loss but always as like you know just kind of a stepping stone to some other place you know whether that's immediately in the next month or, you know, in the next 10 years, I can't tell you how many times I, you know, reconnected or circled back to people who I've known for years and years, for a long time, never had any dealings with them business wise, whatever work wise. But then the time came when I was like, okay, this is a fit. And we're like, oh, okay, this is something that was created then. I mean, it could have easily just been written off as unimportant, right? So I think such an encouraging story for people who've um, you know, branded an, an experience as a quote unquote fail, but I love that story. That's so great. <laughs> and uh, it's like the the worst nightmare type of thing when you're like, wake up <laughs> naked at school or something. You're like, oh my goodness, what have I done? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. I flipped it. I flipped it around because um, I literally just said, oh, tell me about the role then. <laughs> so, good, good. Very so good. Like, oh. 
and, and you know and then obviously I had no idea what they were talking about because I had not prepped for it at all um and then I think I just came out with oh I really need a whiskey right now <laughs> <laughs> and then I just related with them on that because they were both kind of obviously um drinkers and they had a bar underneath the the office and they were like oh let's let's um you know once you get through this we'll go for a drink and it just kind of became really light-hearted after that I've bonded with a lot of people over a drink I think um, I think there's also an element where you were talking and you kind of hinted at this, you know, the, the element of not putting people necessarily on a pedestal, because I think when you're play, you're in a position where, you know, it can be embarrassing or humiliating or disappointing, I think it's good to kind of, I mean, for lack of a better term, you know, just level out the playing field. And I mean, I use this, this analogy all the time when people are like, well, how do you, you know, if you're not yet established, if you're not yet, you know, you don't have all of these accolades behind you, how do you kind of go for that opportunity when you feel like you're just not enough or you're too small? And I think one of the biggest things that you touched on that I'm a huge believer of is that, you know, you do have to kind of look at people, not from the perspective of, oh, this, this is a big name, or, oh, this is like an important person, and just kind of you know, bring down the, uh, again, kind of bring out that humanity and just kind of allow that, that time to really be an opportunity to break the ice, which you totally did, obviously. <laughs> so that was hilarious. I just, I just love that so much. Um, so I wanted to, uh, you know, make time here to, to let you share a little bit more about Blue Feather Designs. And uh, I mean, you've touched on it throughout, but just share with the audience perhaps where they can learn more about your work, you know, study it, um, you know, get inspirations from you and, and, and potentially, you know, follow your work a little bit more and, and then we'll wrap up the interview. Oh, amazing. Thank you, Talia. It's been such a lovely pleasure talking to you as well. Um, but yeah, you can find me on Instagram, mainly is where I hang out um, under Blue Feather Design Studio. So it should be quite straightforward. Amazing. Natasha, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And for everyone listening, I'll be sharing Natasha's information in the show notes. So be sure to check her out. Um, you know, go to her website and, and go to her Instagram and, and just kind of check it out and learn a little bit more if it resonates with you. You know, follow her, her, her work for sure, because it's very, very important. And I love everything that she's sharing. And obviously, you guys do as well. So uh, be sure before we head out, you guys, to hit that follow, add, subscribe or collect button. And until then, I'll see you guys next time.